Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show from Pasadena, California, that explores the things that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome filmmaker Pablo Morales. Born in Los Angeles, Pablo and his family later moved to the west side of Altadena to a large enough house that could accommodate him and his six siblings. Incredibly, it was a six-bedroom home designed by the famous architect, Wallace Neff. Pablo attended local POSG schools because his parents were drawn to its music and arts programs, and he would later graduate from the iconic John Muir High School as a member of the class of 1982. Majoring in communications, Pablo attended Sonoma State University and lettered in soccer. There he made a music video that would change the course of his career. Unknown to him, a professor submitted his video to a student film festival and he won. From there, Pablo attended UCLA and embarked on a career as a filmmaker and storyteller. In 2008, he founded Arroyo Psycho Films to create films, TV, and digital media productions that entertain and challenge. He co-wrote, co-directed, and co-produced Gringos at the Gate, a film about the soccer rivalry between Mexico and the U.S. His most recent film is the award-winning documentary, Can We All Get Along? The Segregation of John Muir High School. It is a powerful film and one that I cannot recommend highly enough for anyone interested in passing the history, California education, and race in our community. So, without further delay, my conversation with writer, director, and producer, Pablo Morales. Pablo, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. We were talking about this before we started recording that. It's currently 10 o'clock in the morning. It is pouring outside. So if we hear rain, there's a lot going on outside, but we're nice and warm inside. Can you share a little bit about your background? As I know, you grew up in Altadena and went to local schools like Franklin, Field, and McKinley before graduating from John Muir High School. Yeah, that's a good summary. I did actually was born in Los Angeles and went to LA Unified for K through one at Eagle Rock Elementary. And then we moved up to Altadena right after busing started in 1971. My dad, who is a retired architect and had seven kids, so he could never find a big enough house in Los Angeles that he could afford. But on the west side of Altadena, there had been a couple of years previous, a little bit of a white flight And so he was able to find a Wallace Neff, which is an architect, pretty well-known architect, six-bedroom home near JPL. So it was a nice change for all of us kids to have our own rooms. And yeah, so that's how I ended up on the west side. I walked to Franklin Elementary for second and third and got bussed out to field for fourth through sixth. Because back in those days, it was K-3 lower elementary and four through six for upper elementary. So I'm a fellow child of an architect. So it's pretty amazing that you grew up in a Wallace Neff house. That's very cool. It was cool. So what was Pasadena and Altadena like when you were growing up? Well, first of all, they're not the same. And each of them were geographically separated east to west. And in the west side of Pasadena, you could even say northwest, north, southwest. So one of the things that I didn't recognize when I was growing up was that I was in a part of a neighborhood that people considered a ghetto because it was a majority minority. And in the case of West Altadena, majority African-American. I learned this later as I was getting probably closer to high school 
and people ask me like where do you live and I'd give an address and they'd kind of give a frown like oh really that being said the schools I was up here during busing so each of the schools had to be completely racially diverse there the ruling in 1970 was that there could be no school that was majority minority in a city that was over at that time almost 70% white I was blessed to be on playgrounds and in classrooms where there was a guarantee that you were going to be sitting not only with the son of the banker, but very likely the son of the gardener of that banker. And oftentimes the socioeconomics would break down racially. Although my particular neighborhood in West Altadena was a middle-class black neighborhood. So when I hear that people think, oh, wow, it's a bad neighborhood, Everyone, for the most part, had two parents. There were multiple kids. They were professionals. There were police officers, people who worked for the government and other capacities, air quality management director, a, owners of small businesses. I did not have a what most Americans consider a black ghetto neighborhood. And I think knowing that there were these misconceptions of what a black neighborhood were later in life really helped me navigate a lot of the biases that our country has with regards to minority neighborhoods, communities, whether they be educational or religious or whatever. There's always a quick response that it must have been terrible. And I can say that my neighborhood was anything but. It was a wonderful, close-knit neighborhood even though we were the only non-black family on the street, most of my best friends growing up were neighbors. We spent every night on that cul-de-sac playing touch football, stick ball. I even taught a couple of kids how to play soccer. We rode bikes every night, went to the nearby. Where I grew up in the west side of Altadena was really close to a lot of the major trailheads. We knew the trails really well. We'd climb every major peak by the time we were in high school. And so, yeah, that was the world I grew up in. And I look back on it very fondly. Based on your career, exploring some really interesting and complicated topics, who are some of your early mentors that were especially important? These could be family, academic, film. It's kind of interesting. When I think back to the people who were most influential in my life, there was a couple of teachers in high school that I look back on, usually history teachers, but also a philosophy teacher I had at Muir, John Muir High School, Mr. Navarro, who kind of woke me up to the idea that there is always two points of view. And he had a great, he had in class where he would ask people, all right, how many believe that guns should be legal for everybody? And how many people believe there should be gun control? And then if you raised your hand that you were for gun control, you had to go to the one side of class where you had to defend gun rights. And if you were for open rights, you had to go over and defend gun control. So you had to end up defending your the other side. And it was a wonderful opportunity to really think more critically of your opinions. I had a history teacher, Mr. Zwiers. He was kind of famous. He had been a student at John Muir College when it had been a college in the late 40s, early 50s. And he instilled in me a really good historical sense of what the importance of John Muir High School to Pasadena. And also he helped me understand how the West Side, the Northwest especially, was always looked down upon by the city 
And although he was by no means woke in any of his opinions, he was on the team of Muir and the Mustangs versus really looking. If you had started said, well, this is because of black or brown or I think he would have. No, that's not what it's about. But then again, he was of his generation. He's since passed on. And then in terms of, I have to say, becoming a filmmaker, it all rests on a teacher I had at Sonoma State University. I'd gone to school to get out of L.A., so that worked. I didn't have a lot of money because I was the sixth of seven kids. So I went to a state school that I could afford waiting tables and pay for room, board, and school. And and I went because I had a pretty good soccer team. And I had, and, and in honesty, that's the thing I wanted to do more than almost anything. I ended up in this little state school in Northern California. And because I had done stage crew in John Muir, I was comfortable working behind the scenes of things. So I did a little stage crew. I started working on the radio station at the school. I volunteered, did a bunch of late night, covered a lot of late night shifts. My dad, if he had his way, he would have been a concert pianist. But his dad, who was an engineer for the city of Buenos Aires, wanted him to get a realistic degree. So he ended up getting an architecture degree, finishing up at UC Berkeley, which is how we all ended up in California. And he moved the family to the Pasadena Unified School District because of the music programs that were here. He had friends whose kids were in in PUSD, and he was so impressed with the Pasadena Youth Symphony Orchestra and a lot of the Pasadena Unified School District all-star bands and orchestras that he thought this is what he thought the the kids would benefit from. But I was the one kid who had a sports gene So it was a big red flag when the instrument I decided to pick up was the trumpet when there had been violins, cellos, violas, pianos ahead of me. I had no interest in stringed instrument. And anyway, I'm digressing. The reason I got up in Sonoma State, because I read, oh, what was the original question? The original question was, who was a mentor? As I was getting to my senior year and I still didn't have an idea of what I was going to graduate with, One of my teachers in the communications field, Michael Lytle, who had worked as a writer in the entertainment world, said, well, you've been doing radio for four years. You've done you've been on the student newspaper as an as a job, actually, as an advertising manager. All of this can be transferred to a communications degree. Those could all be core classes or those credits could go towards. And he said, and all you have to do is do a couple extra credit projects. And Panasonic donated us this analog VHS camera and edit source and record edit deck and nobody has touched it for a year because nobody knows how to use it. If you can figure out how to do it and make a video, I'll give you four units. And I'm like, okay, that's a deal. I spent part of my senior year shooting with three of my friends and a fourth friend helped arrange to get some original music from a band that was her boyfriend's band in San Francisco. And I made in 1986 a music video because that's what you made in 1986. And honestly, I forgot all about it. And then in the year after college, he sent me a very nice letter saying that I should go to film school and that the video that I made had been submitted to the Bay Area Guardian, which at that time was the biggest weekly in the Bay Area, to their student film festival. And I had won best film or best music video. I guess that's video of some sort. So the professor submitted the video? He submitted it without me knowing. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not really planning on doing anything else. I submitted to UCLA film after hearing from people that there's 101 chance of making it. And I made it. And I guess the rest is history. But I have to thank him for that, 
for saying something in me that I didn't even know I, I had. And uh, yeah, okay, how's that? Did That's, that answer your question? It did, thank you. All right, perfect. It was long and convoluted. No, it's very good. So you founded Arroyo Seco Films in 2008 to make socially important films and videos. Why was making films that address social issues important to you? Because I find that I'm most passionate and willing to work hardest for projects that do more than just titillate or entertain. And I think my whole life, without even recognizing it, that if I saw an important, something that I felt moved me to want to make the world a better place, to make my neighborhood a better place, to just realize that in this large arc of progress socially, if I saw something that somebody had made that made me feel strongly about that, that to me was one of those things that was important in life. Because I'd worked in the industry already almost 25 years at that point, and worked on all sorts of projects from reality television to very important, mainly short films that had gone on to win Oscars and things of that nature. I knew inside me that I would work better and happier knowing that the end result was maybe going to make things or the world a little better. That's all. Hmm. Well, we have a lot of questions that we were kind of going back and forth about this. I submitted questions to you and you're like, this is going to take hours to get through. <laughs> So I'm trying to pare it down so that we don't... We Only because I'm long-winded, James. No, this is great. So I want to make sure we hit a lot of the big topics. Sure. In 2012, you co-wrote, co-directed, and co-produced Gringos at the Gate, which is a film about the soccer rivalry between U.S. and Mexico, and where the rivalry finds itself culturally at the time. The movie concludes with the U.S. being Mexico for the first time in 70 years in Mexico at Azteca Stadium. And soccer played a large role in your life. You talked about that earlier. Yeah. Now, 10 years later, coming off the World Cup, we were talking about that before we started recording, because you have Dutch and Argentinian roots. How has this relationship changed since 2012, since the U.S. has now beaten Mexico more often than not? Well, I think one of the things that's happened since we made that film is that I think the Mexican fans in general are coming to terms with the fact that they are not going to be sole as the words are kings of CONCACAF. I'd like to think I coined that phrase, but I've heard it on ESPN a couple of times and I'm like, hey, that's what I said. But when I originally came up with that idea, the reason I knew that there was a film in that was that I was working at Disney at the time and one of my coworkers who was Mexican, it was during the 2006 World Cup, the US had just finished beating the United States in the qualifying, so it'd be 2005, the two to nothing as they tended to do back in those days. And I just for more than more just fun than actual belief said, well, Mexico, you guys had the 20th century. That was your century. But I think that the U.S. is going to have the control of CONCACAF in the 21st century. And he literally started to break down and tear up at the thought that the United States might actually get better than Mexico in soccer, that this meant a lot to him. So now 2022, 23 I don't think that concept would bring a Mexican fan to tears. I think that they've come now to realize this is going to be, it's, a, it's still the most dynamic and interesting rivalry, in my opinion, in the entire world. And it has, even more, thanks to Trump, I think there's even more of a sense that the sort of the pseudo-imperialism that the United States imposes upon South America and Central America has is only more irritating to those people south of the border when you have MAGA as a defining characteristic of almost half the country. It's really interesting because I am not jingoistic and I'm not 
by any means. My patriotism is, I believe, pure, not just based on some sort of unrealistic ideas of the American exceptionalism. That being said, it is always fun to talk to countries who look down upon the U.S. in this particular place in men's soccer, not women's, and know that we are only getting better. And so, I I don't know, I find it's, we toyed with the idea of a Gringos 2 before this World Cup, but I think all of us, the two other filmmakers, Roberto Donati, who's, and Mike Whalen, both of whom I went to UCLA Film School with, Roberto is a Mexican of Italian descent, and Mike is a guy I actually played against in college. He went, he did his undergraduate at Santa Clara University. And so he was basically taking the American point of view and Roberto was taking the Mexican point of view. And I was acting as the neutral between as sort of the person who came up with the concept of the film and tried to constantly even it out so that the film ended up being just as popular, practically more popular in Mexico and ESPN Deportes had higher ratings than it ever had playing on ESPN in the United States. I felt I did a pretty good job with that, that people didn't just discount it as some three gringos and their twisted, warped opinions of that soccer rivalry. Anyway, well, so. I think it's a very balanced point of view, and I think that you do a really good job as the intermediary between the two points of view. So the next question I was going to ask was, how has film changed? And I think Gringos Out the Gate is a great example. I found it on YouTube, and I was able to watch the whole, whole film, whereas that wouldn't be available for filmmakers 20, 30 years ago. No, and technically, if ESPN finds it, or I should say the U.S. Soccer Federation or Mexican Soccer Federation finds that film on YouTube, they're going to want to take it down. I think there were only a handful of views yeah. of it. And I think but that's probably why I'm it's not allowed up. to promote it. I'm not allowed to show it. Basically, it's interesting. If you want to talk, if we want to get into a conversation about filmmaking, as we were producing it, I was the producer of the three. I was the lead producer, so I could have probably vetoed, but I always voted. I was suggesting that we do not use game footage because the game footage has many rights that's attached to it. And it's very expensive. But when we cut the first couple of rough cuts together, the game footage really added so much to the film. So were we willing to go out and raise more money to create alternatives? I went to a film festival in Berlin in 2013 when we were doing distribution of it. And it was a soccer film festival. And I saw how other filmmakers had handled this situation really well. They took the radio broadcasts and they used animation or photo montage Interesting. And, and all sorts of things that I think if we had voted, yeah, let's do something other than the game footage, we probably would have had to come up with something similar as well. But instead we went straight game footage, saved a little money by having my friend Nick Webster do the announcing as if he was, he had been a soccer announcer for a little while at Fox Soccer when that was a thing. And, uh, but otherwise the cost of making that film was in the range of twenty to twenty-five thousand, the cost of the rights to those films was up to about forty thousand. Wow! So, and we couldn't get them in perpetuity because FIFA doesn't work that way. You can, but they are going to really—they're going to ream you, especially for World Cup footage. World Cup footage is gold. It's, it's how they make money. We got enough money to show it on broadcasts in North America, Mexico, and the U.S., and we got enough money for a festival run. And then the idea was, oh. ESPN or somebody's going to buy it and they're going to give us so much money we can buy the rights. And No, we got enough money to make money, but not enough money to buy the rights. So that's why that film is, it's out there. I'm glad somebody did put it on YouTube. I definitely don't want to be associated with that. If anyone ever comes and says, hey, 
why did you put that out there? I'm going to say I had no idea. It's not me. That's fair. Yeah. So let's dive into an even more complicated topic, mm. which is your 2019 documentary, Can We All Get Along?, which is about John Muir High School and passing his incredibly difficult history with education and segregation. I'm going to correct you in that the 2019 version was the festival cut. The version that has already been seen by many more people is the 2022 PBS cut. Is that the one that's on Vimeo? That you pay for? That I pay for. Yes. Okay. The newest one. The newest yeah. version. Okay. Did it have a little bit at the end with drums? I don't oh. remember, but I bought the film okay. on Vimeo. So okay. supporting the film that way. Good. But I got a lot of press when it was aired by PBS, which is thankfully, yes. which is great. No, it was the number one streamed local program on PBS for a month, which no, was great. really nice. So the film has, it talks about a really interesting history about Pasadena, but the history of the film itself is kind of fascinating because it originated from a 30th class reunion project. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about when you felt that there was more to the story that needed a full length film than just a class reunion project. Yeah, it actually started, I'm in the class of 82. I reconnected with a gentleman who was in the class of 81, who's in the film quite a bit. His name is Cameron Turner. He was the person who woke me to the idea that we were, as he said, lucky to go to school in Pasadena in the 70s. And I remember reading that. It was shortly after Facebook became a thing. And I said, lucky. How are we any luckier than anybody else, right? So we sat down and met at the Altadena Library. And he gave me a very short history of our time in, in PUSD and how it differed from any time before and how it differs from now. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. And I had no idea it was part of a small window of social justice. I guess that's the best way to put it. So I proceeded to included me in a planning meeting for the class of 81's 30th reunion, which was down at Mihara's restaurant in Pasadena. And there around this table were 12 people that were as diverse racially and socioeconomically as any group of people I had been in since I graduated in 1982. And that's when the light bulb went off. I went, oh my God, he's right. <laughs> Look at these people. There, I mean, there is nothing that these people have in common except that they went to the same school and they're friends and they have been friends for 30 years. So I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to make a little film. I was, we were in the process of editing Gringos at that moment. Using my DLA film school education, I knew that the best way to make a, a short project is to give yourself incredible limitations. So I thought, okay, I'm going to interview 10 people with 10 questions, and the entire project has to be 10 minutes long. So that's what I did. It took me about two weeks zero money. I shot it with my little camcorder. The microphone's in the camera half the time. It's just for me, basically. But I showed it at their reunion. And the response was, I had no idea. I showed it to Hector Tobar, who's at that time was a columnist for the LA Times, and who had been a voice in Gringos. And he said, this is something nobody's talking about. Nobody is talking about this. And he wrote it up in his column. So I got all these letters. So I thought, okay, I just barely touched the surface. Let me start see if there's a feature in here because I, I want to know more. I want to learn more. So that's what started me towards the, originally it was, can we all get along stories of integration from John Muir High School? It was all going to be roses and sunshine 
about and rainbows about the 1970s in Pasadena and specifically at Jamir High School, which had sort of been the reason that there was busing was because of the families around that school. And the longer I worked on it, and it took 10 years, the more I realized the story wasn't that. The story was not that it had been integrated, it was that it had now been resegregated and in a much more negative way than it had ever been before. So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Well, it's going to be no shock to anyone that listens to this is that I'm really fascinated by narrator-led stories. And you're the narrator in the film. And I think you made a comment once that you didn't intend to be the narrator, but it just happened to be that. And then you used your personal story at Mirror and the fact that your son was going to be going to Mirror as the through line of the film. And I think it's a very powerful one. So as a filmmaker, how challenging is it to tell a story that's so close to you? Well, it's some, nothing that I planned on doing. The original film, Can We All Get Along? The Stories of Integration from John Muir High School was going to have a narrator. It was going to be Cameron Turner because he was the one who had actually lived it. I had moved away for 25 years and he had stayed in the community. And so he was deeply involved in seeing how all of these changes in the mere community. And well, it was his story, honestly. Unfortunately, and this is tragic, he passed away in 2016 while I was in the middle of editing that film, which made me have to rethink what it is that I had because we hadn't finished his work. We hadn't done the final couple of days of voiceover that was going to be the way we were going to get our A-line, which was his story, basically. We hadn't done his story. We'd only inter- I'd only interviewed him in relation to his own history and his opinions of things. A very good friend of mine who went to UCLA after me, but he's a very well-known story editor in the United States, Carl Furman, I hijacked him, or Shanghai'd him, technically, because I was living in Shanghai at that moment. My wife works for Disney, and we were, they were in the process of building a theme park. I sent him an airline ticket to Shanghai, <laughs> knowing that he was working on a film by my friend Pam Tom at the time, but that they were stalled in editorial because of financial issues. So I said, well, it'll only take two weeks. Just come out. So I brought him out to Shanghai, and I showed him all my footage and talked about what I wanted. And I said, how can this project be salvaged? And he said, because, Pablo, it's you were there, too. This is your story. And you have a son who is actually, he was the one who pointed out to me, which is so weird to think, that the reason this was important to me was because I had a son. And I was thinking about where he was going to school and what his experience was going to be and how it was going to be different. And why is it that he couldn't have had an environment that I felt was invaluable to who I am as a person and I also think is beneficial to our entire community. So thank you, Carl. So the case you make in the film and in supporting interviews is that John Muir was never a segregated school. Correct. It was a place where children from all walks of life and cultures interacted And the period of desegregation was a very stable period. I think that was a comment that you made either in the film or I think in the supporting interviews you've done. But since the 1970s, Pasadena as a community has resegregated schools. Late 90s, but yeah. yeah. How was this accomplished from both a policy standpoint and a cultural standpoint? Well, it's interesting because recently somebody on YouTube posted a 1961 roundtable discussion um, of civil rights leaders just prior to the March on Washington. So there was Martin Luther King, there was Whitney, oh God, I was going to say Whitney Brown, but I don't think it's, but anyway, the head of the NAACP, the guy who ran SNCC, the names I know, but I can't recite them right now. 
And one of the things they talked about in 1961, they were talking about how the hardest thing to overcome is to convince white Americans that equality for black Americans didn't mean that they were going to have a lesser experience or was going to make them poorer. To make, to solve economic inequality doesn't necessarily mean that you will become poorer by them getting richer. And I was watching this last week and I was like, oh my God, that is exactly the force winds that pushed, I'll just say public school in general, but PUSD, it was stark because it actually had desegregation. That was a very rare thing to have on the level that it was in Pasadena. Now, I think I covered it in the film without like having this kind of like as a, it's something I understood, but it was nice to hear these very esteemed, knowledgeable gentlemen who've been fighting for civil rights their entire lives. When someone buys real estate, they don't want that real estate to go down in value because of policies, policies, state policies, and local policies, neighborhoods that are minority majority were devalued. So you want to be away from those neighborhoods because the way you maintain generational wealth in this country for the mass, vast majority of people is through home ownership. Rights is at the core of racism. I think that's the first time I actually said that out loud, but I feel like now I get this idea, like why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult? And it would require a huge reevaluation of how people generate wealth in this country. And because we're a capitalist country, wealth is the way we measure success. James, there's a lot of layers to this. So I'm gonna to try to just kind of get to the heart of it and just leave it at that which is our instincts. We are in a country that our instincts tell us that if a school or neighborhood is majority minority, it is to be avoided. Now, there was a period of time when the government was trying to move us towards some level of equity and to try to repair some of the damages of the past. And there was so much pushback that it only lasted 20 years. And we can look now at the results. Oh, I think they're very stark. I think it's very easy to see the results. People say, oh, it's a really good, I'll just put this one little thing that sort of, for me, crystallizes the whole thing. The comedian Chris Rock talks about his neighborhood. And he says, I live in a neighborhood in Northern New Jersey. And in that neighborhood, I don't think it's like a well-known black actor and a really well-known black singer and a, me, a super successful comedian. My neighbor is a dentist. Hmm. So when people say, but there is no green is the only color that matters, but who has the green and how did they develop that wealth and how long have they had that wealth? And I wanna get into the whole history of why systemic racism is so detrimental. But unless we really address those root issues as a nation, and we agree that it's important, it'll continue to be a struggle between individuals like myself who've had an opportunity to see through the fog and say, look at things could be better. And I refuse to be part of the problem. I really have enjoyed seeing a lot of my super liberal progressive friends who've seen my film and said, oh my God, I never even thought about that. I sent my kid through a private school that I said, oh, that private school that was actually set up because white families didn't want to integrate their children. And they're like, oh my God, well, I said, it would have taken you about 10 minutes on Wikipedia to discover that if it had been important to you. But 
wealth, family wealth, security, a sense of security, the sense of status. All these things are far more stronger than a sense of social justice. You kind of touched on this a little bit about the property rights, and I think that goes into this next question, which is something that I did not expect in the film is you address and talk about a lot of different factors that are played into this. You talk about Prop 13, which we're going to, that's the next question, but you talk about Prop 187. I was born in the 80s, so I remember the Pete Wilson era and the blowback and the efforts to kind of criminalize immigration here in California. And you talk about the Department of Education at the time, so this is the DeVos Department of Education. And you also talk about Rodney King, which is where the name of the film comes from. And I had no idea that Rodney King went to John Muir High School. And so I think that's another through line through the movie about this history that so many people don't know about. And there's a whole point of this podcast is to like explore these histories because people don't know. That's funny. No, no one's really asked me that question, which is interesting about the title. No one's asked you about that? No, and it's very interesting. No, I think it's because it's pretty self-evident in the film. Yeah, that's But true. when I was making the film and I was interviewing all the people that had gone to school there, regardless if it was pre-desegregation or post-desegregation, it was the how many people said we all got along. And it was such an easy thing to go, yeah, we did. And there was somebody who said that who went to the school that was trying to tell the entire world that we can get along because it's not a rhetorical question for us who went through that period and who lived in those neighborhoods because he grew up near me. Learning more about Rodney King in the process of doing research, and I didn't realize that there were two witnesses that night, and one of them passed away before the trial because he died in a car accident in Pasadena. So they lost that particular witness's testimony. They had it in a deposition, I think. So they don't lose the substance of the interview. But it's just another tragedy in that whole event. Yeah. I mean, there's so many tragedies in the Rodney King beating. But that's another side tragedy that everyone thinks about. So one of the areas you talk about is Prop 13. And we all think of it as a property tax issue. That's how I thought of it as. I'm in real estate, so I was like, Prop 13 controls your property taxes. And... I was doing research, and the year before Prop 13 passed in 1978, California spent about $7,400 per pupil, which was $1,000 above the national average. By 1983, the average dropped to $6,700, which was below the national average. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about Prop 13, how it kind of came about, and how it directly impacted Pasadena? Well, I I started Muir the fall of 78. I had the five brothers and sisters who had gone through the school before me. So I knew what was offered. My eldest brother had drafting photography, was part of a sailplane club where they used to go out and fly sailplanes and flying club, I guess, is really what it was. They had, the departments were super full. All my brothers and sisters had been done driver's ed through school. There was a sense that there was, regardless of your passions, you would have an outlet in this large, comprehensive high school of almost 3,000 students, right? So to me, it was like a wonderland. When I started, John Muir High School was well known for their spring musicals. We would go to Hollywood to a rental house and rent touring, touring level sets. And because our soundstage at the stage was so large, we could accommodate these, right? And... So that meant the costumes too were full of rentals. They were full, and they were amazing productions, right? And because you had a full orchestra, you had a full choir, you had 
a drama department of about 150 kids, who many of whom went on to have careers as actors. Well, by the time I graduated four years later, no more musicals. They didn't have the money to rent the sets. They didn't have the money. Already, they were starting to see the effects. I said my parents came to Pasadena because of the music education. In elementary school, they give kids instruments. And if you were good, you, they were all stars. And so the amount, the, the kind of musicians that were coming out were amazing. Well, already you were starting to see that some of the elementary schools were not doing full music departments anymore by the mid 80s. I, it, I did a lot of research to see why it wasn't like there wasn't a drop off from 78 to 79. It wasn't like just the reason was because so many groups and a lot of them of these teachers unions, everyone like really vilifies, but they sued, right? And these lawsuits kept the effects of Prop 13 going into full effect right away. They kind of dribbled out mm -hmm. over five to six years. And I was already in Sonoma State by the time I'd heard, for example, that the soccer team I had been a part of at Muir was no longer doing their annual trips down to tournaments around Southern California. They just didn't have the money anymore. And yet, at the same time, I have to say, I didn't recognize, I knew that Prop 13 was bad, and my parents were virulently against it. But it wasn't until I came back in the early 2000s and saw just how small all of the student organizations were. There was one also one other thing that I learned as I was making the film, I was talking to my friend, he's a TV producer in town, Lamont Westmoreland. And he was somebody I always bounced ideas off as I was making this film. And so I said, well, I'm going to be touching on Prop 13. He goes, well, I was the editor of the school paper. And in 1981, we got a notice from the district that we would no longer be able to do photography, that the cost of printing photographs and everything was too high. So for one issue, they just had blank squares where the photographs were. And he had it and he showed it to me. I was like, wow, that's pretty stark. In the end, they, the teacher, the advisor found a way to get the money. But that's what it turned into. The idea that schools wouldn't have money for things that are not even arguably important is something that shouldn't be an issue. Public education shouldn't be devalued to the point where things that are invaluable for children have to be raised by, by parents or nonprofits. If in the case of like so many of these schools like Muir, where the average socioeconomic of the student's body was so low, that there was no going to the PTA for funding anymore. And that's another negative side of middle-class parents abandoning public schools is, and you, a huge source of funding gets dried up. The film was shown at John Muir. I don't know if, is it still shown? It's shown to the uh, freshmen. Freshmen. Is it shown to any other schools in PUSD? I've showed it at Passing High School to the principal of, at the time, and we showed it at Blair and at Marshall to individual classes, but it hasn't been shown on a student body level, like at Muir. As history is so important to understanding who we are and what we need to do to move us forward, do you think we need to have classes about passing this history taught in the schools? I can't see the negative of that. So much of what teachers are forced to give is based on these requirements for education. And I am always amazed that they manage to educate the kids as well as they do considering all the limitations that they are that are placed on teachers it is interesting that the concept of educational reform and the movement towards reform in education mirrors the period where they were trying to basically stop 
integration in schools. There are a lot of very subtle weapons that are developed by reactionary people. And as I mentioned in the film, defunding the schools through things like Prop 13 is highly effective to making community devalue a school. Because, and then the other things like just putting, focusing so much on standardized tests and then judging a school based on standardized test scores without, those are the two things that I think I accentuate the most within the film because it is things that educator after educator, whether it's the state board of education or I have an in-law who works at for, or I talk to several schools, historians and teachers across California primarily who, and I wanted to compare, well, how is this compared to what happened here, happened there? And the things that were similar, the Prop 13, the fact that standardized tests are creating an impression that our schools are failing. And I don't think there's ever been a time when the quality of education in public schools has ever gone down. Hmm. That is a perception. That is not the truth, because if you go to Cal State LA, you go to the teaching school, you talk to the professors who have been there for any length of time, they'll tell you that they have gotten only better and better at teaching students or teaching teachers, creating better teachers. So if the teachers are getting better, then what is it that's making the schools less? Why is their status going down? And it's just because there are people who really benefit from public education being less than. It was said straight up in certain charter school organizations that there's billions of dollars are spent in public education. If we just took a percentage of that's a great business model. It's a business. Public education is public good. Public education is foundational to our democracy. It is truly what makes America, if you're going to be talking about American exceptionalism, what made America exceptional was this public education K through college that was public and excellent. My parents are immigrants from a very advanced democracies. I'm vacillating with Argentina because that can be hit or miss. But, but the point is they recognize that their kids would have an opportunity to have excellent public education. And over the years, it became less affordable through policies. But still, I went kindergarten through masters of fine arts in all public schools, right? I'm a direct product of that. And we as a country do not appreciate our public education for what it has done. And I've had the opportunity of my son going to school in another country. And so I know that those perceptions that they are better are based on complete uh, fallacies. Oh, Chinese students are accelerating, are so much better at math, right? You've probably heard that. Okay, it, is a kid guaranteed public school after eighth grade? No. No idea. No. It Not only does it cost money to have a kid go to high school, but you have to take a test to get into it. So a vast majority of children in China have eighth grade educations. I had no idea. Yeah. So you're judging a 20% exceptional or rich percentage of a population versus, yeah, we have dropouts after eighth grade, but I can guarantee you it's not 80%. I always think it's funny when my son started third grade in LA Unified, they had a introduction for parents and said, we are going to make every child college ready. This was like, the school goes till fourth, sixth grade. So I was like, isn't that kind of unrealistic? I mean, not, I'm, I have seven 
six brothers and sisters, not everybody went to college and they are still very successful because they're, that's America. You have a skill. I have a brother who's a very famous violin maker. He went to a trade school and so college wasn't for him. I could have told you college wasn't for him in third grade when I was doing most of his homework. Academics isn't his thing, but he had the opportunity to go to a school that taught him what he wanted to learn and could excel in that field. And that was public education. So yes, I'm, I'll get off my soapbox now. It's a very good place to be. Final couple of questions. Your journey has taken you from being a filmmaker to a passionate advocate for public schools. Not that you weren't before, but it seems like it's changed. Yes or no? Oh, absolutely. Oh. I don't think you would have called me a public advocate for anything, but probably the United States soccer team in the LA Galaxy, <laughs> probably. So you got involved in Integrated Schools, which is a grassroots group created in 2015 that not only values, but prioritizes integration by encouraging families to send their children to neighboring schools. As you mentioned charter schools, and my wife was a product of public school and was sports was a big thing for her. She played tennis, soccer, basketball. And so my wife enrolled my oldest at basketball. And so she was listening to parents yesterday at a, a basketball practice. And it was a white mother and African-American father. And the father was wondering where he could send his son to go to school. That would be the best for him for football and basketball. And the white woman said, oh, you can't send him to PUSD. Right. That's and you, very and you, common. And you can't send them to private school. So she recommended Odyssey, which is a charter school. But not for sports. That's interesting. So it was just, and this is a story that my wife just recited to me as I was walking out the door this morning. The perception is there. Yes. And we didn't really dive into this, but you talk about, in the film, you talk about great schools, which could be a whole nother topic entirely. Oh, yeah. I've become more accustomed to great schools as a homeowner and as mm -hmm. someone that's done research more and more and how it's a really incredibly damaging tool. Yes. And it's damaging for realtors to use it, but that's a whole other topic. So as the local chapter leader of integrated schools here, yes. can you talk a little bit about it? And then how do we bring more families back into PUSD? Wow. Yeah. Just a small question. Yeah, it's just a little question. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is when I talked to people in integrated schools, one of the first things I have to say is that my project predated Courtney Mickton, the woman who started it, that and my understanding of what it was that I was talking about was very, no, I was a novice. I was seeing everything through my perspective as someone who'd been in integrated schools and just assumed everybody could understand that was a good thing, right? So meeting Courtney after she started the integrated schools and learning that for the vast majority of white and privileged parents in this country, they are wading through a tidal wave of negative opinions about public schools, especially neighborhood public schools, especially public schools that are minority majority. And they have a lot. They have a lot of ammunition, the people that are against public schools. Like we mentioned, they have, oh, lower test scores. They have not as much money for X, Y, and Z, right? You'll be doing a disservice to your child, right? It's kind of hard to fight against that. But she decided that she has this really great story where she talks about she moved into Highland Park from a pretty white part of America where this wasn't an issue. 
And she was told by a neighbor who was also white with white children that you won't be sending your children to the neighborhood school. And more specifically, the neighbor said, well, nobody sends their children to the neighborhood school where she had just driven up the hill past that school and seen the playground full. So that's not true. It's not like nobody sends their. And then for the first time it hit her, what she was saying is there are no white children in that playground. So that was her woke moment, I guess. Woke is such a difficult word these days, but I actually appreciate it. I don't want to be asleep. And I was like, oh yeah, well, it's all, isn't it obvious? That would be a better situation. It's just like, no, Pablo, you are not coming at this from most people's perspective on this. And so I had to relearn the very topic I was making a film about from a different perspective, which is from a, the parent perspective. And what are these things that are creating these perceptions of, of less than for these public schools? And what it comes down to is nothing will improve unless we participate. If you can sit around all you want and say, well, I think it should be better or we should have more integration, but I don't want my child to be part of that. Well, it'll never happen, right? So integrated schools is basically there to answer questions for parents who are coming at it from, I don't know why nobody is sending their child to our public school. Mm. And how can I integrate, participate in the integration of a quote, integrating school? Because it's interesting, we still take a perspective from the whites. If it's not 100% white, it's not 100% segregated. And I think that is not true. I think segregation works both ways. Right. And so I'm very happy to say that the positive effect of my film over the last three years since I finished the first cut, which was what I considered my festival cut, is that Muir has more than doubled its white and privileged students. It's still a small percentage of the overall population and doesn't come close to the being representative of the neighborhood demographics, but it's moving in the right direction. And I do a lot of conversations like this because I feel like much of it is people reacting like that woman to her friend or to the, to this, oh, you can't send this. No one is following that up with a why. So I want more people to ask why. And yeah, I think in Pasadena, at least we have a history to go back to your other question that it can actually show, hey, yeah, integration didn't exist all over Pasadena. It happened in Muir. There were kids, the vast majority of children, and I call them children, even though they're high schoolers, who entered as freshmen. This was the very first time they went to a school that was integrated. If they went to Elliott Junior High prior to 1965, they went to an all-white school, right? If they went to Washington throughout its entire history, they had a minority of whites. So those are the two feeder junior highs. A little while there was La Cunata Junior High for, a, for 10 years or so, but that was also a case of all-white and then coming to Muir. And, and so it's, we can look back at our own history and see that it was beneficial. And I, will, I have a lot of friends who went to PHS. And I often say, you've always had more people. You've always had more money. But I will put our alumni list of notable alumni against your list any day of the week. And we'll see who, which school had the greater impact. And then let's talk about why it had the greatest impact. And I know it from talking to these people. You're the sixth guest that's a John Muir alum. Trayvon Saylor, mm -hmm. Saylor Coffee, Dennis Robinson, 
Patrice Marsh-McKenzie, who's now on the POSD board. Yes. Lynn Hudson, who's a historian, and obviously you as well. Nadia, who is now a counselor. Oh, yeah. So she graduated and then came back. So John Muir has had an incredible impact on Pasadena, both the students, current students, and then the alums, like you mentioned. I mentioned this before we started recording. I'm a product of private schools. I right. went to re- religious schools. I'm sending my kids to religious schools because that's the upbringing I want them to have. Right. Because I'm not religious at home. I want them to have some foundation. But I also recognize that the school that they go to was founded in 1960. And I'm not naive to think that most likely the reason why that was started in 1960 was it probably because five years before Brown versus Board yeah. happened. And that's probably why it was founded. If it's in a middle-class neighborhood? Yes. Then yes. Yes. I mean, I'd like to think that the head of school is African-American. They've put a real push to diversity. So we've gone. Yeah. It's no longer the school from 1960, but it's still a religious private school. Right. How can someone like me be an ally to you and your efforts to integrate the schools? Well, one thing you can do. Because I think we're on the same side, but we're going about a different way. For me, the most important thing is not to... If you cannot be that woman that says, do not look at your PUSD school. In fact, integrated schools has a policy of not telling parents where to send their children. What they do have is what they call the two-school visit. Don't make a decision until you visited your local school. Oh, and this has been for, I know, the principal of Jamir High School. He said that this has been the thing that has changed the perceptions of the mirror more than anything, is just having parents come on the campus and seeing what's there and not being fearful of it. You have to break that barrier. And if you have to break down so, so many biases that are prevalent throughout our entire culture and society, just because he's young, black, and male, doesn't mean he's dangerous. I was blessed that my youngest friends that I'm still friends with today were once young black males. Here's the other thing. And I try to explain this to people. A lot of people say, well, you can have segregation. It could be beneficial. Look at the HSBCs, right? And I say, well, hold on a second. We're talking about colleges. Colleges are adults. Right. Yeah. A story I'd love to tell. My own family, there are people who did not feel comfortable sending their children to public schools, right? So I know where this is coming from. My niece graduated from Poly, one of the most exclusive schools in Pasadena. So I went to her graduation a couple of years ago, four years ago. And one of the speakers from her class was a young black woman who stood up and gave the most impassioned speech about how her time at Poly K through 12 had made her feel less confident her story was much better than I could say, but it basically says she went to school in kindergarten with her best friend. And by the time she graduated, she felt like it was she was her best friend was a stranger to her and her best friend was confidence. And it was because she was constantly being reminded about how different she was um, or how lucky she was or all the things that children who go to an equitable school aren't told because there's so many people that are in a similar situation. It's one of the problems with tokenism in general. So she was announcing at that moment that she was going to be going to Howard University and she was looking forward to reconnecting with her oldest friend, Confidence. And I was in tears. I was like, oh my God. So whereas if she had stood up and said, I was so lucky to have gone to school here and these opportunities and 
so forth and so on. It might have been true and it might have been perfectly fine. But what she was touching on was something much deeper, which is that children are open. Children don't come into social situations like schools or teams or anything else with the assumption that somebody is like something based on the color of their skin or whether their father is rich or father is not wealthy or anything else. So when you're doing, I like to use my second grade first day at Franklin Elementary kickball. That was the game that the boys played at recess, right? Now I'd been playing soccer for a couple of years already. I had a pretty good kick, all right? So I was immediately welcome in as somebody who would be picked, right? Because you pick, I pick, who gets picked first, who gets picked last, right? No point was someone picking anybody for any other reason than they were good at kickball. And I just feel like that is what school should always be about. Merit, truly merit-based and so diverse that there is no sense of them and us. And not that it didn't exist on some level. I don't want anyone to think that, and I think I tried to explain it, that because Muir and Pasadena are in the United States, we have these negative, as much undercurrent of racism as anywhere else. But for that period of time, or at Muir for its entire history, there was that sense of you could become something because of who you are and not because of what you are. Don't make an assumption that a school is a good school or a bad school without actually visiting it. Understand that you are dealing with children and that what you, what environment you put them in is having a bigger effect. I will only say that my other niece who went to Alverno because they were living in Sierra Madre, she's older. She's now a mom herself. But I'll never forget the day she came back, came over to our house, the Wallace Neff house in West Altadena, and said, I didn't even realize you guys lived in the ghetto. Because that's the perspective of her friends on the east side mm -hmm. in a Catholic school. She's talking about her grandmother and grandfather's house, right? And she's ever gone over to talk to the Millers next door or the Washingtons down the street or the Jacksons across the street or the Hardys or the Flemings, all the families who are our as close to my parents as any neighbors had ever been, my parents felt a real part of that neighborhood, even though they were the only non-black family. And that says a lot to me. Like, uh, And we've lost more than just the schools. We've lost that sense of community. Odyssey was created by teachers in the early 2000s who were PUSD teachers who wanted to teach a certain way. There was a lot of restrictions, as there always is in public education. So they started their own school. 20 years later, those things that they wanted to be able to do are now common in the PUSD schools. So technically, there's no reason for it. Mm -hmm. But now there's this school that's majority white, majority middle class or higher, socioeconomically superior. So now you can, with the title of charter, send your child for free to a school that is supposedly better than that other school that is merely filled with children of color and lower socioeconomic. Uh, and that seemed wrong. And this happens all over the country. This is n no longer is Pasadena in any way special. So yeah, I'm disappointed that we moved back up here to Altadena. My son started middle school here at the local middle school. And there are, I'd say probably at least half dozen kids of his age within two blocks. None of them go to the local public school. So he doesn't know them. We even went to a gathering of neighbors 
and nobody brought their kids, which I thought was really interesting because their kids are middle-aged kids, honestly. They're teenagers. They're not going to want to be there. But the idea is, I think even if they had been, it would have been hard, right? Now, I don't know how you grew up, but in my street, we all knew each other. My, I'm not even sure my parents knew all the other families on the street, but I guarantee you, between all seven kids, we knew every child within three blocks. And, and my child can't have that in my same neighborhood, basically. It just doesn't exist. We fragmented ourselves based on this need for status or security that is, is false anyway. The kids graduating from our public schools are amazing and doing amazing things. And there's nothing to fear from that. But we are destroying our sense of community. We are destroying opportunities for kids who maybe didn't get the better opportunity because there wasn't the money to support that particular program or that particular situation. I know, like, for example, when I was growing up, the all-star bands would go on trips to like New York or wherever, and it would change kids' lives because they had never, their families weren't rich enough to ever have traveled. I personally never flew on a jet till I was 18 and going to college once because there were seven of us. And my dad was an architect, but he wasn't like famous architect. Can't take seven kids on an airplane in the 1960s and 70s. But I didn't feel like I was... I had suffered, my education didn't suffer because I didn't have the opportunity to travel outside of the Western United States because we went on camping trips. I knew most of the state parks within Southern California because that was our getaways. I look at these kids, I look at my son's classmates and I realize that there are, that if anybody drives past the school as they're coming into school or coming out of school and they're looking over at a large group of children of color and their immediate reaction is, oh, I'm glad my kids don't go there then we have a problem because those that is your community. That is your community. Those kids live in your neighborhoods. So yes, how can you be an ally? Tell them before you make a choice, visit the school, right? Well, I was driving by Muir over the weekend and there's tour signs all over, which is great. I yeah. love to see that. Yeah. I think the principle of Muir in your film says they need to be more competitive because there's more competition for kids. Yes. They're promoting tours. That's how you sell. So yeah. I think it's good. You either swim with it or you swim against it. Right. For a long time, public schools swam against the idea that they were commodifying education. Right. We in the 90s created an opportunity through deregulation to make public goods private. We privatize. It's the idea of taking public goods and privatizing them and that making them more competitive and somehow better. Right. <clears throat> Never worked. Never works. It never works. It's one of the least patriotic things people can do, actually, is to weaken the things that make us stronger as a community. My brothers and sisters were taught how to drive while students at Mirror. And we had really good driver's ed teachers. Like, we remember what was told to us. And sometimes I'm driving and I'm seeing how badly people drive, right? And I could be nostalgic. This could be... I don't know if, if statistics would bear this out, but my feeling is now you pay a company to basically say, okay, you're educated. We're going to teach you enough to pass that test. Thank you very much. You're out. Because they're not going to spend that extra time because they don't really care. Right. Do they care? They don't care. They just want your money, get you to pass the test. They're done, right? Our teachers saw us at school. Yeah, my, I took driver's ed at high school and the teacher was the dean essentially and so it's like if you messed up in the parking lot 
you're going to see the dean who taught you how to drive. Yes. So you're going to see it on Monday morning because he's going to call you in. So as we wrap up our conversation, I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Last two questions. One is you talked about you're working on a new project. Can you talk a little about what's next for you? Yeah, I'm actually doing a project for hire, which a filmmaker both loves and hates. We love the fact that we're getting paid. (laughs) (laughs) And we hate the fact that it may not be what we would really like to make with it because we have bosses. But it is a fun project. It's a, basically, it's a local project because you know I have a pretty good local reputation. It's, I'm being paid indirectly through the LA County. It's going to be an educational film. It's actually a short film series because there's going to be three of them, one for each grade level. And it's looking at California history and the importance of abolitionists with a specific nod to Owen Brown, who was John Brown's son, who was buried here in Altadena at that point, was just unincorporated L.A. County. I'm about to start the interviews in about a week, and it's going to be a lot of fun in the sense that it won't be a straightforward documentary. I'm going to try to make it entertaining for kids, so it's going to be heavily graphic and no talking heads. And I'm actually really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's that project. Yeah, I didn't realize until I talked to one historian that there are so many Civil War veterans, both Confederate and Union, that are immigrated to California and are buried here in Altadena, Sierra Madre, Pasadena. Well, generally Altadena because Pasadena didn't allow cemeteries. So if you ever notice, there's no cemeteries in Pasadena. So that's why Mountain View is... I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. It makes sense. Yes, it does. There's a lot of cities that do that. Yeah, so Mountain View has an incredible... San Francisco, for example. Mm. The cemeteries are in South San Francisco. Ah. So yeah, so Mountain View has an incredible amount of veterans. So it's kind of... It's interesting. Yeah, and they just did a nice event and put up a plaque for Owen Brown, which was nice that we covered recently. Last question. It is the fun question I ask Mm. everyone at the end. So if you could design a perfect day in Pasadena or Altadena from breakfast to late night, what would you do? Where would you go? And what would you eat and drink? Wow. Okay. I feel like since I grew up here, there's a lot of things I would have would like to do that I don't think I have the energy for anymore. That's fine. You can include it. You have <laughs> okay. limitless, limitless energy. A limitless energy. And time. Yes. As time. a parent and a professional. Yes. Those are two things I don't have much of. I think, Okay. Some of these things are impossible. Yes, they are. Okay, so a perfect day for me. And I, as I, I actually dated a girl who in high school who grew up just a couple blocks from here in my new house. And I was thinking this the other day. I remember like one of my perfect days, and it was actually with her. So what we did is we went for a hike in the morning before it got too hot. Then we packed up a picnic, and we went down to Brookside Park and had a picnic And then we went to the old Rialto Theater in South Pass, and we watched two revival movies, two of which are still some of my favorite movies, Harold and Maude and The King of Hearts. And then as my parents, or her parents, I think it was her parents were driving us home because we didn't drive. (laughs) I didn't have a car in high school. I was thinking, okay, that was about as good a day as I've ever had. Yeah, it's so, it's so weird to think now that I'm older, I have money and all the things. I think the simpler things that don't cost money are still the best thing. And I think the thing about, I know that I've lived in places, other places in the world. And I'll tell you, having these mountains here is what tells me I'm home. Like mm. I have, having the mountains to my back makes me feel safe and secure. Looking out at my yard and seeing fruit trees is saying I'm home. And 
having generally, not today, but usually pretty clear skies and the ability to do as I want, whether riding a bike, going for a hike, being outdoors is the things that make this such a great place. We didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I can't say, I know there are a lot of things I've learned to appreciate, great theater, a lot of great music venues, amazing restaurants. Because those are all very modern, or for me, recent pleasures, I don't feel them so much a part of who I say, what is to me home. So does that answer your question? That's a great answer. Okay. Well, thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena and Altadena. I'll stress the Altadena part. <laughs> I just, I always feel more Altadena no, than Pasadena, but I appreciate that they're, <laughs> we're all Dina. We're, we're, we're all, all Dina. Dinas. Yeah. For shining a light on these incredibly important topics and becoming involved with integrated schools and for coming on the podcast, I greatly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much. My many thanks to Pablo for coming on the show. More than any other, this conversation really challenged my understanding of history and my perceptions about education, real estate, government, and race. And that is a good thing. It's important to have these discussions head on and explore uncomfortable topics. This is where growth occurs, and I came away from our conversation open-eyed and motivated to do more for education in Pasadena. For more information and to follow Pablo's current project about Owen Brown, please visit arroyosecofilms.com and support his work by purchasing Can We All Get Along? The Segregation of John Muir High School on Vimeo. This episode is our first for 2023 and what I've called Episode 1 of Season 3. My goal with the show has been to produce and post two episodes per month, but since November, family, work, and health have slowed that down. But I have some great episodes in the works and plan to expand its area of focus on stories that inspire and motivate. I want the show to continue to evolve, and I have a lot of ideas. Some are realistic, and some are interstellar. But I always want to push to make a larger impact. There are many people that help keep the show going. First, I want to thank my Patreon sponsors, Justin Albert. I really appreciate your continued support. Second, to my family for all their love to keep this project alive. And finally, to all that listen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, or supporting it through direct sponsorship or Patreon. This is the only podcast that has never been supported by a mattress company, Athletic Greens, or a meal kit. I love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, film that music video, and as always, see you around town. Start over. Start over. Okay. Do you like podcasts? No. Why don't you like podcasts? Because they are boring. Okay.